Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Today's episode of Truth and Justice is sponsored by Sean T. Fitness. This month, Sean T. is pushing people to new heights with his December challenge, hashtag Holiday Edge. Every weekday for the first three weeks of the month, Sean gives you five exercises to challenge your body so you can finish this new year strong. Just go to facebook.com slash Sean T. Fitness to join in the action. Also, Sean is offering 10% off of his apparel at SeanTApparel.com. Use promo code at checkout, S-T-Edge, as in Sean T. Edge. So once again, you get 10% off at shantiapparel.com by using the promo code STEDGE. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I want to thank all of you for tuning in today. Before we get into the content of today's episode, I want to make one announcement. Two weeks from today, there will be no episode. I'll be out of town on vacation that week. I don't get back into town until late on the 23rd. Then we've got Christmas Eve and Christmas, and there's just no time for me to record an episode that week. So we will have an episode next week on the 20th, but the weekend directly following Christmas, there will be no episode. So what that means is that next week on December 20th will be the last Truth and Justice episode of 2015. This has been a crazy trip over the last several months, and I want to thank each and every one of you for coming along for the ride. And I believe that we're going to start off this new year with a bang. I know that you all are hearing this on Sunday, but I'm actually recording this on Thursday the 10th, and today is Serial Day. Serial dropped episode one of season two this morning. And the answer to your question is yes, I absolutely listened to it on my way into work this morning. I've had a lot of listeners asking me if I'll be discussing season two on Truth and Justice. And the answer to that question is no. For starters, in season two, Sarah is not discussing a wrongful conviction. So it doesn't really fit the format of our show. But I definitely have to say after listening this morning that while I'm not terribly interested in the topic that's being covered on Serial this season, it was nice to hear Sarah in my headphones again. And, I mean, Sarah called the damn Taliban. I didn't even know that was a thing. So I'm sure it's going to be an interesting season, but we will not be discussing it on Truth and Justice. What we will be discussing today is another suspect who has been on a lot of people's minds. I still get asked about this man on a regular basis. So I decided over the last week to go ahead and dig up everything I can dig up about him so that we can walk through him as a suspect. Today's episode will cover Suspect, Mr. S. For those of you that don't remember, which I'm sure is none of you, Mr. S is the man who found Hayes' body in Lincoln Park on February 9th, 1999. He was discussed briefly on Serial, and Undisclosed discussed him in depth several months ago. The whole story surrounding Mr. S.'s discovery of Hayes' body really is kind of a mystery. 
I'll tell you up front that I don't have a lot of new information for you. Undisclosed did a good job of covering Mr. S. I was hoping that if I dug deeper, I could find a little more information on Mr. S. But there's just really not a whole lot out there on him. So for a lot of you, or most of you, this will really just be kind of a recap. But we will get into a little bit of analysis after we go through all the facts. We'll start with February 9th. According to Mr. S., on February 9th, 1999, he left his job at Copen State University where he was a maintenance man. He left around lunchtime to go home to get a tool. It was a plane used to shave down the edges of a door or a window to make it fit better into the frame. He says that he had a work order to fix a door in the gym and that one of the Copen State employees kept asking him when he was going to get to it. He claims the Copen State's maintenance department did not own a plane. So on his lunch break, he drove home. Now this is where the weirdness begins. Mr. S. lived northwest of Leakin Park. And for those of you that are unaware, Hay's body was discovered on the south side of Leakin Park, off of Franklin Town Road. Copen State University, where Mr. S. works, is east of Leakin Park, about parallel with the very north edge of the park. And the reason that this is relevant is because the most direct route from Copen State University to Mr. S.'s home and back to the university would have been to go along the north edge of the park. There's a road called Windsor Mill Road that's almost a direct shot from his home to the university. That road travels right along the northern edge of Leakin Park, and after changing names a time or two, it ends up right at Copen State University. So that's strange thing number one. If there's a direct route that goes along the northern edge of the park, and Mr. S.'s home is on the northwest side of the park, and Copen State University is on the northern edge of the park on the east side, what was Mr. S. doing all the way down in the south end of the park on Franklin Town Road? This was a point that Gutierrez attempted to make at trial and failed miserably. But it wasn't all her fault. If any of you are a glutton for punishment and are in for a very frustrating read, look up and read the trial transcripts from trial number two where Mr. S. testified. Between Gutierrez cutting him off and phrasing her questions like Yoda, and Mr. S. being stubborn, not wanting to answer the questions, cutting her off, and speaking too quietly for the judge to hear him through the microphone, it takes about six pages for every question that Ms. Gutierrez is trying to ask, and she never really lands her points. She spends pages and pages of the transcript trying to articulate to the jury by getting Mr. S. to answer questions about his route that he didn't take the most direct route to get back to the school. She was asking him about street names. He said he doesn't remember the name. Every time she would throw in a did you not, he would get confused or feign being confused and wouldn't answer the question. He would ask her questions. The judge would yell at him for asking her questions. It's just painful. And I can just imagine being on the jury trying to figure out what in the hell was going on. But if you pay attention, it's pretty clear what Gutierrez was trying to get at, which is what I just explained to you. If Mr. S.'s intention was just to go home and get his tool and go back to work, there was no reason for him to be down on the south end of Leakin Park on Franklin Town Road. It was quite a distance out of the way. The second strange thing comes from a line of questioning about the tool that Mr. S. was going to his home to get. Now again, this is a simple point that could have been made quite easily at trial, but Mr. S. and Gutierrez were like kryptonite to each other. Again, it took pages and pages of confusion and yelling at by the judge and objections by Yurik for Gutierrez to attempt to make her point which again, it's a punch that I believe she never landed. At one point, she asked Mr. S. if it's common to have doors and windows that swell at Copen State University. He says, yes, it's common. They have wood doors. The buildings are old. It happens all the time. 
What she was getting at with the line of questions is, and Colin Miller made this point on Undisclosed several months ago, if it's a common practice to have to shave down the edges of doors and windows at that university by the maintenance department, why does the maintenance department not have a plane? But again, Gutierrez just doesn't come out and ask that question. She sort of dances around. Mr. S does the same, and it's another punch that's never landed. What I mean by that is, I don't think the jury quite got the point. I was frustrated just reading it. Having to listen to the tones of voices that they must have been hearing, and the fact that the judge kept complaining that no one could hear Mr. S as he was speaking, which meant the jury couldn't hear what he was saying, I can just imagine some of those juries just getting fed up and kind of tuning out. But again, the strangeness that was going on here was that according to Mr. S, this type of repair happens all the time at that university. He also claims that they don't have that tool. He says that he did not ask his boss or punch out to go home, but he said that he knew he had that tool at home, so he went home to get it. He states that when he went home, his stepson and a friend were at the house when he got there. says he went in, got his tool, grabbed a 22-ounce of Budweiser, got in his truck to head back to the campus. Now, for fairness sake, I think this may explain why he was going the strange route back to the university. Trying to put myself in that situation, if I wanted to throw down a quick double deuce on my way back to work on my lunch break, I'm probably not going to take the most direct route. It takes a few minutes to drink 22 ounces of beer, and I would also probably try to avoid major roads. However, I wouldn't exactly consider Franklintown Road a back road, but it was through a wooded area. I would assume there would be less traffic there than on Windsor Mill Road. So then Mr. S. states that while he's on Franklintown Road, he needs to urinate. So he pulls his truck over on the side of the road and goes back into the woods to do his business. Now there's another strange thing here, and I believe Susan Simpson made this point in the Undisclosed episode. Mr. S. is traveling east towards Copen State University. So he pulls off on the right side of the road, which would be the south side of the road if you're heading east. And for some reason, when he gets out of his truck, Instead of going to the south side of the road where he was already pulled over, he crosses the street onto the north side of the road and goes into the woods over there. He says that there wasn't really a path. He just went back into the woods to find a place to pee. He came to a log, and I'm still, after reading the transcripts and the police statements, unclear of what exactly happened next. It gets really confusing, especially at trial, when he's talking about whether he stepped over the log if he was on the side of the log closest to the road, or the opposite side of the log, whether he started to urinate, or was just getting ready to urinate. But in any case, somewhere he's around this log, said he's getting ready to urinate, and he sees what he believes to be a foot sticking out of the ground. He says that he looked a little bit closer, and he saw hair sticking out of the ground as well. He says that he did not touch the body or investigate any further. When asked why, he said he was frightened. So he says he leaves the woods, gets back into his truck, he never does urinate, by the way, according to his statement, and zips right back to Copen State University. Once he gets back to the university, things are a little strange there, too. He doesn't call the police, and he doesn't go to the police station while en route back to the university. I don't know if he had a cell phone or not. But he goes directly to the campus police station, but when he gets there, he doesn't report the body to them, either. Instead, he asks for the location of a specific security guard who he requests by name. Now understand that Copen State University has an actual police force and then they have security guards. The gentleman that Mr. S. asked for was not a police officer. He was a security guard. He says that the police told him where the gentleman was. He tracked him down, told him that he thought he found a body in the woods. The security guard then tells him he needs to go tell the police. 
and he goes and reports it to the police. The police then go out to the scene. Mr. S. actually has to go out there with them and show them where the body is, and from there the police began their investigation. And this would be the time when the Baltimore County Police Department handed the case over to Baltimore City because Leakin Park is located in the city. So there are a lot of oddities here. Why did Mr. S. take that route instead of going the more direct route? Why did he have to go home and get a plane at all? Why doesn't Copen State University have a plane in their maintenance room when supposedly it's a common practice to have to plane down these doors? And how in the hell did Mr. S. find Hay's body? Now there's a lot of confusion about this because it's been said that Hay was not buried well. She was partially buried and that's true. The place where Hay was laid to rest was a natural depression in the ground. And we know this because that natural depression, when you look at the burial scene photos, actually extends under the log and continues on to the other side. So unless the murderer dug a 6-12 to inch trench to put her body in, and then took the time to continue digging that under the log and over to the other side, that depression was already there. I can't tell you definitively if the depression was dug out at all, or if she was just laid into the depression and then covered up. It's hard to say. She wasn't much deeper, if at all, than the depth of that natural depression. The written reports don't really indicate one way or the other whether tools were used. In fact, they say that they were unable to determine if tools were used to dig the hole. My personal theory, and that's just my personal theory, is that it was done by hand. That whoever buried her found the natural depression, scooped out as much as they could by hand, or possibly used a shovel. The ground would have still been pretty frozen. Maybe they found out they couldn't dig very deep. I've also been told that there's actually rock directly under where she was buried, so that would have been really difficult to dig there. So maybe someone tried to dig it deeper and couldn't. I don't know. But you've all heard that there were parts of Hay's body that were exposed. And like I said, that's true. But you have to understand, it's not like her body was sticking out like a sore thumb. Even with parts of her body exposed, she still blended in very well with the ground. One of her feet, part of her hip, her hair and her right hand were exposed above the ground, but not by much, just barely. There was leaves and foliage all over the place. The parts of her that were exposed were dirty. So if you were looking for her body, you certainly would have seen it. Even though one of the investigators that I believe interviewed on Serial or they played a clip of him said that he was standing exactly where he thought the body should be and almost stepped on Hay and didn't realize she was there. So my point being, it's not like someone casually walking through the woods would glance at the burial site from, say, 20-30 feet away and notice right away that there's a dead body there. It was not that obvious. However, if Mr. S.'s story is true, and he was about to urinate right in that exact location or right near there and was looking down at the ground, yes, you absolutely could have seen her body. There were parts of her exposed. And a big argument that I hear a lot is, why would Mr. S go so far back into the woods? And I don't know that we can really speculate on that. I mean, we can speculate about it, but we can't come up with anything definitive. We can only think what we would do in the situation, and as we know, not everybody's minds think alike. For example, which side of the road Mr. S went to to pee. If you're looking at this on paper, he pulled off to the south side of the road, why wouldn't he go into the woods on the south side and use the bathroom? That makes sense. But what also makes sense if you think about it practically, or at least to me, is if I pull off on the right side of the road and I have to pee so bad that I have to do it in the woods instead of waiting three more minutes until I got back to the campus, when I open the door, I'm getting out towards the north, I could see someone just continuing to walk in that direction instead of walking around the vehicle over to the other side. So I don't think that either one of those scenarios are out of the question. But the timing is another weird thing. 
The place where Mr. S stopped to pee was about three miles from his house, and it was about the halfway point between his house and Copen State. So we're talking about a time of three to five minutes from the time he left his house to the time when he had to urinate so badly that he pulled over on the side of the road. And also, like I said, he was only a couple of minutes away from getting to school where he could have went to the bathroom there. But just in general, there's a whole lot of suspicion around Mr. S just stumbling across Hay's body in the woods. And of course, I think all of us already knew that. So the question becomes, if you don't believe Mr. S's story, then what is a plausible theory as to why or how he found her body in the woods? Well, the police had their suspicions as well. They questioned Mr. S, and they actually submitted him to a polygraph test. Two, in fact. And these polygraph tests have been mentioned before, but I'll touch on them again. And there's even more strangeness wrapped up in these polygraph tests. The first polygraph test was conducted nine days after Hay's body was found on February 18th. Mr. S failed this polygraph test. The result was deception indicated. But for starters, a few things about polygraph tests. They are not an accepted science, meaning they're not admissible in court. And the reason for that is that they're thought to be unreliable. There are ways that people can lie and beat the test, and it's also very easy to get a false reading if someone has some anxiety or if they're nervous. In this first test conducted on the 18th, along with some control questions, there were four relevant questions asked about Mr. S. finding Hay's body. And for those of you that listen undisclosed, which I'm sure is pretty much all of you, you've heard these questions before. Mr. S. was asked, Are you attempting to withhold any information about the death of the female you found in the park? Answer, No. Did you do anything to that girl to cause her death? Answer, no. Had you ever been in the company of that girl you found before the day you found her? Answer, no. Had you ever been to the spot where that girl was found before the day you found her? Answer, no. On the next page of the report, the results are given, and I'll read it verbatim. On February 18, 1999, the date of this examination, Mr. S. seemed to be preoccupied with outside issues. He appeared to be nervous and time-conscious. He monitored his wristwatch repeatedly. When I questioned him about his behavior, after I had conducted the examination, he explained that he had an important meeting with a realtor and that his wife was depending on him to pick her up after work. I suggested to the investigators handling the case that Mr. S. be retested in the near future because of the outside issues he was dealing with. The polygraph examination given to Mr. S. on this date resulted in the following final call significant responses that would normally indicate deception indicated. So in a nutshell, Mr. S. was asked if he was withholding any information, if he did anything to cause Hay's death, if he'd ever met her before, and if he'd ever been to the spot where she was buried. He answered no to all of those questions, and the test indicated that he was lying. However, the tester said that he was nervous and preoccupied, he had a meeting, he needed to pick up his wife. He thought that that might be the reason all the deception was indicated, and suggested that he be retested which is reasonable. So Mr. S. was retested six days later on February 24th. But here's some more weirdness. So you heard the four relevant questions that they asked Mr. S. the first time he was given a polygraph examination. The tester reported that the results indicated that he was lying, but he believed that might have been because of outside sources and he should be retested. So you would think that on the retest, they would ask him the same questions again. However, they didn't ask him any of the same questions. Another weird thing about this test is that there's no control questions, at least not on the report. The first test listed several control questions in the results. The control questions were mixed into the relevant questions. 
For example, is your last name, and they give his last name. Is your middle name, and they give his middle name. Then they ask, are you attempting to withhold any information? They follow that up with, do you now live in Woodlawn? Control question. Then they move on to, did you do anything to that girl to cause her death? Followed by, before your 15th birthday, did you ever tell a serious lie to get out of trouble? Were you born in Baltimore? So you get the idea. They were asking what they call control questions mixed into the relevant questions so they could get a better reading. However, in the second test on the 24th, there's no control questions listed. They asked him seven questions. And like I said, none of them were the questions they asked in the first test, which was kind of baffling to me because the purpose of this second test was to redo the first one. These are the questions that they asked. Do you know if that girl you found died because she was stabbed with a knife? Answer, no. And all these questions start like that. Did she die because she was shot? Did she die because she was poisoned? Because she was choked? Was she hit with a baseball bat? Was she hit with a tire and iron? Was she run over by a car? Mr. S. answers no to all of these questions. And this time he passed. The results say no deception indicated. So according to this test, he didn't lie when he answered those questions. However, we don't know how to compare that with his first test because those were different questions. So if you take these tests at face value, it would seem that he was number one withholding information about her death, that he did something to cause her death, that he had met her before, and that he had been to that spot in Leakin Park before. However, he apparently has no idea how she died, according to the second test. So what do these polygraphs mean? Well, unfortunately, because of the way they were conducted, and just because of the reliability of polygraph tests in general, I don't think they mean anything. There's nothing we can really do with those. Police departments will use polygraphs still to this day as an investigative tool, meaning they'll use them to maybe help point them in the right direction, but they're basically useless because the results are inadmissible in court. So again, in trying to analyze Mr. S as a suspect for this case, I tried to look at how he could possibly be tied in. Well, you remember that Sarah Koenig mentioned on Serial that Mr. S was a streaker. She told an anecdote about how he had actually been streaking in front of a police officer, left his clothes, and then actually went to the police station and reported his clothes missing. So some people have speculated that maybe he was in the woods going for a quick nooner streak and happened to stumble across Hay's body. But at the same time, people have asked, if he's a streaker, why does he have to go 127 feet back into the woods to go to the bathroom? Since it would seem that he's not exactly all that shy about people seeing him naked. Well, I went ahead and pulled Mr. S.'s criminal history to try to determine if people were exaggerating his inclination to streak. And it turns out, nope, he, uh, he likes to streak. A lot. Mr. S. has kind of a long criminal history. He's actually been arrested 13 times. And I'll go through with you a list of his charges. In 1994, he was arrested for indecent exposure. In 1996, he was arrested for indecent exposure. In 1998, he was arrested for indecent exposure. 99, indecent exposure. He was arrested three times in 2000, all three for indecent exposure. In 2002, he was arrested for indecent exposure, but what caught my attention with that one was there was a second charge added to that arrest, which was second-degree assault. I was looking to see if Mr. S. had any known violent history, and I thought maybe I found it here. But when I looked up second-degree assault in Maryland, by legal definition, it can have one of three meanings. It either means that the individual had an intent to frighten someone, an attempted battery, or battery. So through the criminal record search, it doesn't say which one of those it was. It just says second-degree assault. But then when I looked through people involved, the complainant was a police officer. 
So since if he had actually physically assaulted the police officer, I would assume there would be a resisting arrest charge. I'm going to guess that this was just a trumped-up charge added to his streaking, and that he didn't actually physically assault anyone. But to be fair, I can't tell you that for sure based on what's in those records. So that was 2002. In 2003, he was arrested for, you guessed it, indecent exposure. Again in 2003, he was arrested for another indecent exposure charge. And there was another second-degree assault charge added to that one, and again, the complainant was a police officer. In 2005, he was arrested for indecent exposure. This time, from the looks of it, he must have given the police a false name because it's listed under John Smith with the wrong date of birth. But then underneath that, it says AKA, and it gives his actual name and his actual address. So maybe didn't have his clothes on when he was arrested, so no ID, and just made up a fake name, address, and date of birth. But the police figured it out. In 2008, he has another charge. This time, it was for open container meaning he had an open container of alcohol in a moving vehicle, which fits with his story of February 9th, where he was driving around drinking his Budweiser. There's nothing on Mr. S.'s record from 2008 till 2015. Just this past April in 2015, Mr. S. was arrested for, you guessed it, indecent exposure. So I think based on Mr. S.'s criminal record search, we can logically conclude that the statements that he was a streaker are spot on. It appears to be something he really enjoys doing, and he's been caught doing it by the police 12 times in the last 20 years. So the big question that people are always asking is, does Mr. S. have any connection to Jay? And as far as I know, he does not. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have a connection to Jay. There's just nothing documented that I can find. I searched through his employment history, his address history, and I can't see anything obvious that would indicate that he had any kind of a connection to Jay. People have said, well, Jay worked in an adult video store, and Mr. S was a streaker, so maybe he frequented that store. And that's entirely possible, but that's not something that we can conclude with any amount of certainty. It would just be a speculation or a guess. So I will absolutely agree that there is certainly a lot of suspicion surrounding Mr. S and the way that he found Hay's body. There was nothing run-of-the-mill about the way that that happened. But like I did with Ronald Lee Moore, I tried to look at Mr. S.'s behavior. Now, before I get a bunch of emails about this, I understand that a lot of people do not accept criminal profiling or behavior analysis as a useful method of investigation. I know there's a lot of people out there that consider it junk science. And I just want to point out that I acknowledge that people have very different opinions on this. As I'm sure as you've all gotten to know me over these past several months, I consider myself a very practical person. It's the way I learn, it's the way I teach, it's the way I analyze. I research and look at facts, and then try to practically apply them. So me personally, I believe that behavioral analysis is a useful tool. I don't believe that it's the end-all be-all, and it's not a science that you can use to convict someone of a crime, but I personally believe that it's useful in investigation. So when I look at Mr. S and I look at his criminal history over the last 20 years, I don't see any evidence of him being a violent person. There are no assault and batteries on his record. There's no domestic violence. There are those two second-degree assault charges, but I don't know exactly what those were. So I'm not seeing anything in Mr. S's behavior that we know of. And unfortunately, we're limited to whatever was documented about his behavior that would lead me to believe that he would attack and strangle a young girl and bury her body. 
Uh, it doesn't mean that he absolutely couldn't have done that, but there's just nothing really here to indicate that. The only thing tying Mr. S to Heyman Lee's murder was the fact that he discovered the body, which also is a pretty lousy forensic countermeasure if he was the one that actually murdered her and buried her to then go tell the police where she was. So I think that if Mr. S had any connection to this whatsoever, I personally believe that it would be because he knew where she was. Either he heard someone talking about it, or he had heard a rumor, or he had seen something. Somehow he knew her body was there. That I could see as a possibility, that he had heard something and he wanted to go out and check it out. But even at that, if we're looking at this practically, how would someone describe exactly where to park, where to walk in, in the exact location of where Hay's body was in the middle of a wooded park. I don't see that as being possible. I think that the only way that Mr. S could have known where Hay's body was would have been if he saw something, if he witnessed something. Maybe he was, I don't know, streaking through the park the night that she was buried. But even with that, why wait 28 days and then decide one day on your lunch break to make a quick pop into the woods and find her? Or maybe he had been looking for her for that entire month and finally found the body. I'm not saying that any of that isn't possible, but the more I look into this and the more I really try to critically think about it, I think the most likely scenario is that Mr. S was wandering around those woods, maybe to take a leak or maybe for some other reason, on that day in February, and he did indeed accidentally discover her body. That just seems the most logical to me. It doesn't mean that that's necessarily what happened, and I'm more than happy to have you guys tell me what your thoughts are about it. Um, you can always send me an email and let me know what you think. But I just can't put together a plausible, logical scenario as to how he would already know that that body was there. So I don't know that I could necessarily say that I can rule out Mr. S as a suspect as having any involvement in this, and that's mainly due to the fact that he does at least have some direct connection to this crime because he found Hayes' body. But if I was actively investigating this case back in 99, I think that I would probably put his file on the bottom of the stack. Based on everything we know and his behavior, he just seems like an unlikely suspect. But there's just too much weirdness to rule him out. And while we're on the topic of behavior, I want to readdress a couple of things about Ronald Lee Moore from last week. The first thing I want to point out about human behavior is our behavior. Mine personally and a lot of you listeners. What I mean by that is, you remember last week when I was discussing how Ronald Lee Moore was portrayed on Serial, and I said that I can't remember if it was from Serial or spinoff from Serial, but honestly, in my mind, I was convinced that Serial called Ronald Lee Moore a serial killer, and that it was stated on Serial that he was accidentally released from prison 10 days before Hay was murdered. Well, I had a couple of people point out to me that that wasn't the case, and I went back and listened, and I was shocked to find out that on Serial... Ronald Lee Moore was described exactly the way I described him to you. He was never called a serial killer. Deidre and Sarah were accurate when they said when he got released from prison. And the whole thing just baffled me. Because I was convinced in my mind that he was talked about as a serial killer on Serial. And one of the reasons that I was so convinced was, like I mentioned, I get tons of emails of people who think that Ronald Lee Moore is a good suspect. And he is always referred to as the serial killer talked about in Serial. And people always mention how he was accidentally released right before Hay was murdered. And the whole thing is just kind of baffling because that's really not what was said on Serial. And I'm not throwing shade on any of you because I had the same idea in my mind as well. And I believe it's some kind of confirmation bias and it's just kind of crazy how it can happen. 
And I'm sure there are a lot of you out there that didn't experience this, that knew exactly what was said. But I was trying to figure out where these rumors came from, and I couldn't find the source other than when I look back through the written transcripts of Serial and then listen to it again, and you find that in the conversation, Deidre and Sarah are talking, and Deidre is talking about a serial killer and how technically you don't have to prove that someone else did it, but you pretty much have to prove that someone else did it. And she mentions, I think it was four or five, it might have even been six times, serial killers in the conversation. And then she brings up Ronald Lee Moore. And actually, Deidre, I don't believe, said Ronald Lee Moore. Uh, She said that she wasn't given the name, and then Sarah talked about it later, that she had figured it out. But I guess I can only speak for myself, and it must have been at that moment where I converted in my mind that that meant Ronald Lee Moore was the serial killer. It's kind of like the game of telephone where the story has gotten distorted over time. Somehow, not only did it turn into that Ronald Lee Moore was a serial killer, but also that that's what was said on serial, and that's just not the case. So anyway, that was just what I thought was kind of an interesting point about our own behavior in investigating this case and how confirmation bias works. And I'm the first to admit I did it myself. I was convinced that on Serial they called Ronald Lee Moore a serial killer, and that's not true. They did not. But looking at Ronald Lee Moore's behavior, I get hundreds of emails every single day about this case, uh, and especially when I'm discussing particular suspects. Some people feel someone is a good suspect or a bad suspect, so I get a lot of opinions on this. And there are still a lot of people out there who Ronald Lee Moore is their number one suspect. And some of those people get a little upset when I say that he's ruled out as a suspect. So first I want to make sure I make clear that that's just my opinion. In my opinion, I don't think that Ronald Lee Moore is a good suspect for this. Uh, But there's nothing wrong with any of you still considering him a suspect, and you very well could be right and I could be wrong. But I want to explain a little bit further about why I say this. Because again, this is another one of those situations where on paper, he looks like a good suspect. He's raped women, he's beat women up, he's murdered a woman. The woman happened to be Asian, even had the same last name as Hay, in the same area. All those things say this is a likely candidate for our murder. But in my opinion, when I look at his behavior, there's just no parallels there. Like I mentioned last week, Ronald Lee Moore was a known crack addict. And Ronald Lee Moore does have a long rap sheet of crimes. Lots of burglaries, assault. He was actually charged with attempted murder at one point. Charged with assault with intent to commit murder. He had gun charges. Like I said, it really looks like Ronald Lee Moore was a pretty rotten person. And I'll just go ahead and say it. He was a rotten person. He's a despicable human being. We know for a fact that he beat up, cattle prodded, and raped one woman. And he beat up and raped and murdered another woman. Just those two things alone, or just one of them, in my opinion, makes you a horrible person. But I just can't see, practically speaking, a person with the documented behaviors of Ronald Lee Moore committing this crime against Hay. And it's not just because Hay's body was moved and buried and concealed. That is one thing. In his other crimes, whenever he raped a woman or murdered a woman, he just left him lay and got out of there. Typically, and I'm saying typically, not all of the time, Someone who is a serial killer, you'll see their behaviors evolve, meaning they get better at doing what they're doing as they go along. And it just seems kind of going backwards. If back in January, he strangles a girl, leaves her body lay somewhere, hours later he comes back and gets it, or he was there the whole time, moves it, buries it, does his best to conceal it, and the body gets discovered because there's parts of the body exposed above the ground, 
and he gets lucky because someone else gets charged with a crime, you would expect, or I should say I would expect, that the next time he did something like that, he would do a better job of concealing the body. As opposed to the next time, when he already knows the body was found when he attempted to conceal it, that the next time he would just leave the woman lay. Now, mind you, I understand that this is not hard evidence that he didn't commit this crime, but it just makes it seem somewhat unlikely for me. And the other reason is when I look at the nature of all of his other crimes, all of his other crimes are violent, extremely violent. The woman that he assaulted in October, he attacked her with a cattle prod and forced her to do all sorts of things that I'm not going to discuss on the podcast. Is horrible what he did this woman. He beat the hell out of her and then robbed her of anything of value in her home and left her laying there naked. The murder of Annalise Lee, which happened in December, it was very similar. She was violently beaten, violently raped, and strangled and burglarized and left laying dead naked in her home. In other burglaries, he has assaulted victims, again, violently. He was charged with attempted murder and assault with intent to murder. All of his crimes that are documented are extremely violent and extremely disorganized. When we compare that behavior and we try to put ourselves in the head of a person that acts that way, that that's their nature, and then think about him as a suspect, him as the person who murdered Heyman Lee. Heyman Lee had two blows to her head and she was strangled and her body was buried but the condition of her body, to me, is important when we're comparing these other crimes. Not only was Heyman Lee not raped that we're aware of. I know a lot of people will get up in arms about that and say, we don't know that she wasn't raped. We, and I'll agree. There is some possibility that Heyman Lee was raped. But I personally do not believe she was raped. She tested negative for spermatozoa, meaning there was no semen in her. But then again, since she had been in the woods for 28 days... They're testing other chemicals in her body, which could be inconclusive because of how long she had been out there. They did take a rape kit, a perk test. Some of these things were never tested. But it was written that there was no indication that they could tell that she was raped. That doesn't mean she absolutely wasn't. I'll agree with that. But the thing is, and again, I'm not going to get into details about this, but when someone is raped, there are typically very visible signs that are easy to detect that they've been raped, especially if they've been raped violently. None of that was present on Heyman Lee. So while I'll concede that maybe there's a possibility that she was raped, I think that is extremely unlikely that that is the case and that it was not detected. But the other thing, besides the fact that it doesn't appear that she was raped, is how she was dressed. Heyman Lee was buried fully clothed. Everything from her underwear to her bra to her pantyhose. And yes, her bra was and her shirt were pulled up, but that could have been from dragging or moving into the grave, or they could have just been that way after the assault. But the big thing that I thought of was she had underpants and pantyhose on. I don't see it likely that anyone would rape and murder someone and then take the time to redress them all the way to the pantyhose. And one reason that seems unlikely to me is because, in my experience, pantyhose are like kryptonite to men. Any of you that have young daughters or nieces that you've ever tried to help with this, my wife can figure it out. I can't do it. And I <laughs> I know that my brother has had similar issues and other friends of mine. Uh, they're tricky, to say the least, if you don't know what you're doing. But beyond that, just someone taking the time to do that, 
I could see maybe redressing someone, but all the way to the pantyhose seems really unlikely that anyone would rape someone and then do that, much less a Ronald Lee Moore, who in every other instance, again, that we know about that's documented, he's extremely violent, extremely disorganized, does not have any care or remorse for his victims. Of course, I can't say with certainty that he absolutely did not do this. But when I say that I've ruled him out as a suspect, I just mean that in my mind, while investigating this case, looking deeper into Ronald Lee Moore, when we don't have any other evidence that would indicate that he did it, just seems like a waste of time and resources. However, as Deidre Enright mentioned on Serial, it would certainly be worth testing the DNA found at the scene against Ronald Lee Moore because he is a known murderer who was in that area and we have no privacy issues with him because he's passed away and his DNA is on file. And I'm all for any way, any method of getting that DNA tested. Because it does belong to somebody, and my guess is it does not belong to a non. All right, welcome back. I want to finish today's show by reading one email, and then I'm going to be consolidating several emails together because I got a lot of the same information from multiple listeners. But the first email that I want to read is from Didi. Didi writes, After listening to the weather data on the last show, I was wondering if it was possible they had outdoor track practice on both the 12th and the 13th, as both of these days were over 50 degrees according to your report. Any chance the coach remembered the wrong day? Thanks for all you do. Good luck with the retirement. Didi. Thank you, Didi, for the well wishes in that email. And I had a few listeners ask me that same question on Twitter. I've said many times that Coach Sai's alibi was pretty rock solid because the only day it could have been was January 13th. Because that was the only day during Ramadan when it was above 50 degrees, when Adnan would have been fasting, and they were at track practice. So many people were concerned when I pointed out that it was also above 50 degrees on the 12th. But to set the record straight on that, it was indeed above 50 degrees on January 12th. However, there was no track practice on January 12th. Woodlawn had a meet on the 12th. The only day that it was above 50 when they had practice was on the 13th. So Coach Sai's alibi still holds up. I've also had several listeners email me or tweet me regarding Asia's alibi. People are concerned that the fact that the ice storm didn't move in until 4.30 in the morning may affect Asia's alibi as she said that she remembers the day because she got snowed in at her boyfriend's house that night. And the only way that I can answer that is to say that I don't know how this affects Asia's alibi. I've only seen the affidavit as you have. I don't know exactly what that means. We're just going to have to wait and hear Asia testify to see how that plays out. And if it turns out that she remembered the wrong day, then... That's the case. Remember, our purpose here, or my purpose here, is to seek out the truth. I have never had an agenda on this show to free Adnan at all costs. My agenda on this show is to find the truth and bring justice. I hold the position that I have that I believe Adnan is innocent because of the investigation that we've done. And I've been over it many, many times as to why I believe Adnan is innocent, so I won't bore you with that all over again. But yes, I do believe he's innocent, and I am fighting for him to be freed, but the facts are the facts, and I will report the facts, and I will report the truth. I am curious how this will affect Asia's alibi, but it's something that we're going to find out soon. The truth will be revealed. 
We don't know what exactly Asia meant by that when she wrote that in her affidavit. It could be that her parents called her and said, don't drive, there's an ice storm coming in, and she considered that getting snowed in. Or she decided the weather's supposed to get real bad, I better not drive. Or like I mentioned on a previous episode, maybe she was spending the night at her boyfriend's and she wanted to leave in the morning and she couldn't. We just don't know. The facts are out there and we'll hear how all of that plays out at Anand's post-conviction relief hearing, which hopefully will be scheduled here in the next couple of months. Now moving on to the next stack of emails, this week has been higher volume than normal because I specifically asked for all of you to help me out with figuring out whether or not there was snow on the ground on January 13th like Jay said that there was. Unfortunately, nobody has yet to be able to produce a actual photograph of the weather or of the ground in Baltimore on the 13th. But I did get a lot of new information. One thing that was emailed to me by several listeners was something that I missed when I was looking through this on Weather Underground. Which for those of you that don't know and you want to check this out, just go to weatherunderground.com and search for the weather history for Baltimore on January 13th, 1999. And you can scroll through day by day what the weather was like. What I didn't catch is that there is a space on those reports that actually shows you what the snow coverage on the ground was for that day. So as you'll remember, on January 8th, there was a snowstorm that moved through. So I went back before that and confirmed that for several days before that, the snow accumulation on the ground was zero before that January 8th snowstorm. So any previous storms, the snow had already melted at that point. I told you last week that there was about an inch of snow on the ground on January 8th. And actually, it turns out that there was four inches of snow that fell on January 8th. However, by the next morning, there was only one inch. As I mentioned, around 1.30 in the afternoon, that snow turned to rain. The temperatures warmed up, and it rained through the night and into the next day. So there was very little snow left. The weather data for the next few days, where temperatures stayed below freezing, was that there was about one inch of snow on the ground up until January 12th. Based on the reports, it looks like the snow accumulation on the ground number was measured first thing in the morning because it was over 50 degrees on January 12th and it still shows the same amount of snow on the ground as there was on the 11th when it was below freezing. So the first piece of solid evidence that we have that there was no snow on the ground at 7 p.m. on January 13th is that weather data. Snow accumulation on the ground on January 13th, according to Weather Underground, the measurement that I believe was taken in the morning, was zero. There was zero snow on the ground on January 13th, according to that report. Temperatures that day were around 57 degrees, so any trace amounts that there may still have been left would have been melted during the course of that day. I've had a lot of listeners point out that sometimes snow lasts longer in the woods than it does in open areas, and that's certainly true because there's no shade in those open areas, so snow can last longer in the woods. However, in my experiences, and as I mentioned last week, that here in rural Michigan, a lot of people, myself included, are deer hunters. So in the fall and wintertime, I spend a lot of time out in the woods. And like I mentioned just a few weeks ago around Thanksgiving, we got a pretty large snowstorm here in my area. The area where I hunt got nine inches of snow. And that snow was followed by a few warm days in the 40s, and I believe it even got into the lower 50s for a couple of days. That was right around Thanksgiving. I actually took my son hunting on Thanksgiving, so we were out in the woods on that first warm day. It was in the 40s, and the snow was really spotty. 
both in the field and in the woods where we were. I didn't go back out again until that Sunday. It had been warm, it rained a little bit, and when I went out on Sunday, the ground was bare. There was zero snow left on the ground, in the field, or in the woods. And that was nine inches that melted. And keep in mind, going back to our situation in Baltimore, we're talking about one inch of snow. There was one inch of snow on the ground, and it was over 50 degrees for two days. So while I will agree that sometimes the snow melts slower in the woods, I don't think that that would be an effect when you have temperatures that are nearing 60 degrees and certainly over 50 degrees for two days in a row, and we're only talking about an inch of snow. Also, when you look at the area where Jay claims that he had a non-buried Hayes body, it was a section of the woods that was on the north side of Franklin Town Road which meant there was the gap wide enough for the road in the shoulder with no trees, and the sunlight is coming from the south, so there's not a whole lot of shade blocking that sun from hitting that area. Also, if you go online and you look for and Google the video of Christina Gutierrez going out to the burial site, you'll see that this is not a very dense woods. It's also not evergreen trees. These trees would not have had their leaves. They appear to be hardwood trees. It is not very dense. The trees are spread out. I don't see any way how that could have stopped that one inch of snow from melting during those two days. The next piece of evidence that I already mentioned, and any of you that follow me on Twitter at TruthJusticePod saw the photos that I posted or on Facebook of the reports on the ice storm on the morning of January 14th. And in those photos, you can see that everything is covered with this thin coating of ice, but you see green grass everywhere. There's trace amounts of snow around the edges of the road where plow trucks and things have gone through, but the yards, the grass, all of that is bare. There's no snow on the morning of the 14th. I also had a listener, Josh, who is a little, well, Josh is a lot smarter than me. Josh is an engineer, and he sent me some very technical information from the NASA slash NOAA weather satellites. He had to send me a link on how to interpret the data. But the short version of that is these are satellite images that show snow cover for particular areas on certain dates. And on these maps, these photos that were taken on January 13th, 1999, it's very clear that there is no snow accumulation on the ground whatsoever in Leakin Park on January 13th, 1999. And as Josh writes it, so you can see that there's pretty good evidence that the ground in Leakin Park was snow-free for dozens of kilometers in every direction during that time period. So thank you, Josh, for sending that data in. So just for argument's sake for the naysayers, I still would love anybody that could come up with photos. I've got a few listeners that know people who had anniversaries or birthdays on January 13th. They were going to get in contact to see if they had any outdoor photos from the day they celebrated their birthday or anniversary in 1999. I haven't received any of those yet. Hopefully we still do. But certainly keep digging. But I'm going to say this, and I guess I have to say that you can believe whatever you want to believe, and there's certain people out there that are going to try their hardest to continue to argue this, but I'm going to say that I do not believe that there was any snow on the ground, none, on January 13th, 1999, at 7 o'clock when Jay Wilds claims that he and Adnan were in the woods burying Hay's body. And I believe that is incredibly significant. The fact that Jay says clearly and is consistent that he and Anand did not use flashlights, that there was snow on the ground, and that's how he could see, that he could count change in his hand, it wasn't bright enough to read a book, 
but he could see pretty well between the moonlight and the snow. And for any of you who are not on Twitter and didn't catch the Periscope that I did tonight, which tonight is Thursday night, on my way home tonight at 6.25 p.m., which was one hour and ten minutes after the sunset, so very close to the parameters of Jay's story, before I left to come home, I checked the moon phase, and we actually have a waning crescent tonight, which is the exact same moon phase that was happening on January 13th, 1999. So as I'm driving, it's occurring to me that these are basically the exact same conditions that they were dealing with in Lincoln Park. On my way home, I happen to be driving past some state land that happens to have some woods very similar to Lincoln Park. So I went ahead and pulled in, and I thought I would test to see how well I could see in those woods under these exact same conditions. And what I found was that it was absolutely pitch black. I not only could not count change in my hands, I couldn't see my hands. And so I grabbed my phone and I turned on my Periscope app and I walked through any of the listeners that happened to be online and wanted to follow along. I tried to walk through the woods with the video streaming Periscope app on so you all could see what it looks like when you're walking through the woods with a waning crescent an hour and 10 minutes after the sun goes down. And what you saw was it's pitch black. You cannot see anything. So I don't believe that there was any way possible that Jay's story could be true. I know there's a million other reasons to know that Jay's story can't be true. But again, this is one of those details that there is absolutely no utility to this lie. He specifically detailed, describes everything they did burying the body. He describes how well he could see. He clearly says that they did not have flashlights, that they could see because of the snow and the moonlight. And I'm convinced there, first of all, was no snow. But a few other listeners sent me some information that really seals the deal for me. I've never really studied moon phases, and there's a fun little fact that I was unaware of. Did you know that there is actually a moonrise and moonset time, just like there is with the sun? Well, there is, and that time shifts constantly. Think about the days when you look up and you can see the moon in the sky at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So here's the last piece of very compelling information that concretes in my mind that Jay is full of shit and there's no way that they were out there at 7 o'clock on that night burying a body with the snow and the moonlight for light. On January 13th, 1999, the moon set, meaning it was no longer visible, about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. The moon did not rise into the sky again until 4.37 a.m. on January 14th, which means between 2 p.m. and 4.30 a.m., there was no moon, not even the small sliver of a waning crescent. The moon wasn't even in the sky. There was no light. It is not possible for them to have seen anything during that time. Not only was Adnan not involved in this crime, but Jay Wilds did not bury Hayes' body. Thank you all for downloading the show today, and I want to make sure I give you all a heads up to make sure that you put it on your calendar to download next week's episode. Next week, I will be previewing the next case that we're going to be discussing on Truth and Justice. We've reached the point in Nan's case where a lot of the leads that I'm tracking down right now and a lot of the investigation that's happening 
are not things that can be aired on the podcast as they might be relevant to the court case. I want you to know that we are not leaving this case behind. Like I mentioned last week, this show is going to become very dynamic. We may be bouncing back and forth from one case to the other. But for right now, while we're waiting for Jim Clemente and Laura Richards to come back on the show, and I'm still working on sourcing out some other leads, we're going to start to make the transition into our next case. So on December 20th, the last episode for 2015, you're going to hear the story of the blizzard. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. Thank you to Tate Krupa for creating our logo. Thank you to today's sponsor, Sean T at Sean T Fitness. And thank you to all of you for your continued support and engagement in this process. A part of me is a little bummed out about moving on to another case because we spent so much time and energy on this one. But then there's that other part of me that is so excited to make a difference in someone else's life and for all of you to help join together and crowdsource this investigation and see if we can figure out if the person that we're going to be discussing was wrongfully convicted, and if they were, then let's put our heads together and get him out of prison. Stay engaged by sending your thoughts, theories, and ideas into theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod. You can catch up with me on Facebook at Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff. Please get involved and get engaged. There's a lot of things that are discussed on social media about this case in between episodes, and I love to hear from all of you. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.